You're listening to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Our podcast normally showcases our weekly sermons here in Chicago at 7601 West Foster. Now, podcasts are great, but they do not replace the care and community you receive from the local church or from your local pastor. So we encourage you to come, join our community, or contact us to help you find a community in your area. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you listen. Enjoy. My honor and privilege to share with you today's message. And uh, so our message today will be from Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. But before I start, I'd like to pray. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so grateful and thankful that we can gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who secured our salvation on the cross. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today through your word and that you would impact our hearts and guide our steps. My prayer is that today we focus on Christ and we glorify his holy name. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, before, we, uh, before I get into the text of today's message, I'd like to take a little look into the history surrounding the city where Paul wrote his letter to the church at Philippi. Now, Philippi was an important city in, in Paul's day. It was located in Macedonia, which is in northeastern Greece, and it was named after Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. In the second century B.C., the Romans conquered Macedonia, and they made it a Roman province. <clears throat> Later on, around 42 B.C., Philippi was the site of a famous historical battle between Caesar Augustus and his army against the forces of Brutus and Cassius, who had, about two years earlier, murdered Julius Caesar. It's set on a date of 15 March. So as a literary side note, this is where Shakespeare coined the term, beware the Ides of March. Now this battle marked the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. And it was in Philippi that Paul had planted the Philippian church, the first church Paul founded in Europe, which you can read about in Acts 16. And this is where, and this was the church to whom Paul wrote this letter to. Now interestingly enough, this letter to the Philippians was a positive one, which was in pretty much contrast to the letter he wrote to the Galatians, which we covered here at Bethel last fall, if you remember. Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. Now, it's most likely Paul was in prison in Rome at the time because Paul speaks of those whose custody he was in. When he talks about the Praetorian Guard in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, who, by the way, operated out of their fortress called the Castra Praetoria, located in the outskirts of Rome. This is why most believe he was in Rome when he wrote this letter in prison. He also mentions his imprisonment in verse 14 as well. So considering all these things, this would make the authorship of this letter around 60 to 62 AD. Now Paul certainly had his share of problems at the time of writing this letter, 
But so did the church at Philippi. Its members were poor. In fact, they were very poor. They were also being attacked, being attacked and persecuted for their faith in Christ, just as Paul was. And furthermore, they were being attacked by false teachers, which you can read about in chapter 3. Now, the Christians in the church at Philippi were under attack from outside and within. And to make matters worse, there were internal divisions amongst the body that were creating some real problems for them as well. Now, with so much heartache and anguish to go around, the book of Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. In fact, the book of Philippians has principles for Christian living that when they are studied, applied, and obeyed, it will bring about a peace, a contentment, and a joy for every circumstance a believer may face. So our text for today's message is Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18, if you care to turn there now. And the title of today's message is Being a Light Bearer, The Call to Obedience. I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Hear now the word of God. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Uh, just to let you know, I am reading from the NASB. Um, Pew Bibles are the ESV translation. So Paul starts out verse 12 with, so then. In the ESV it says, therefore. Paul starts out, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. So what does Paul mean here when he says, so then, or therefore, in your translation? So then what? Who obeyed who? Who or what was it that the Philippians obeyed that Paul was referring to? So in order to understand this context and move on from, chapter, from verse 12, we need to go back to the beginning of the chapter. Back to verse 1. So as I read the, the beginning of chapter 2 at verse 1, while I read, I would like you to please take special note of verses 3 through 8. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in a form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So it's Christ's selflessness, it's Christ's humility, and it's Christ's obedience in verses 3 to 8 that Paul is referring to in verse 12 where he says, just as you have always obeyed. Paul had previously taught this to the Philippians so that they have the example by which to live their lives. The Philippians lived in obedience just as Christ lived in obedience even to the point of his death. And Paul is encouraging the Philippians here. He's encouraging them to continue to do so, to continue to obey. He's encouraged them to continue to live by the example that Christ has set, that Paul previously taught them. So here's a key point I'd like us all to, all to remember. The faithful response to God's word is obedience. The faithful response to God's word is obedience. It is living in obedience that enabled the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And it's obedience that will enable us to do that as well. It's living in obedience to God's word and by the example set forth by Christ. Now listen, this is not behavior modification. This is not living in such a way where you really don't want to do it, but you do it anyways. That's not what it is. This is a heartfelt desire of wanting to please God by living in obedience to his word. It's having a proper heart attitude towards it. Now let's look at what Paul said in the second part of verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this verse has been used by many a false teacher and by many false religions to confuse people about, how, about salvation and how one acquires it leading many to hell. Now we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean to work out our salvation? You see the tension here? There's a tension here with that. What does it mean to work out our salvation? Well, let's take a look at what it doesn't mean. <clears throat> Working out our salvation doesn't mean we can earn our salvation. It doesn't mean we can achieve our salvation by being nice or good. As Romans 3.12 says of this, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Working out our salvation doesn't mean we can work for or toward our salvation, as in building up credits in an account, and when you die one day, God will weigh, weigh the account. Well, you did more good than bad, so you're in. That's not what it's about. Again, Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, what can we do to get salvation? How do we save ourselves, and can we save ourselves? We can do nothing. We can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. So you see what Paul, so what, what does Paul mean to work out our salvation? 
again, there's that tension. As born-again born Christians, we know that our salvation is accomplished by Christ and his death on the cross. We know we don't, we know we don't do anything to get saved, right? Should be a big amen on that. We know as Christians we don't do anything to get saved because we can't save ourselves. We are saved by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that saving faith is given to us by God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 3, 24 to 26 says this, but I'm going to start at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Since we are not saved by ourselves or anything that we can do to save ourselves, then how are we saved? By faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I want to emphasize to you that we are not being called here to produce our own salvation, but rather we are being called upon to work out our God-given salvation. Now, in order to work out our salvation, we must have a heartfelt, a heartfelt desire to obey God, to willfully work for his purpose and glory. One cannot have a let God and let go mindset or a Jesus take the wheel attitude. We are to be intentional and work out our salvation by being obedient to the word of God, displaying and living the characteristics set forth by Jesus with willfulness and with joy. This is the process of sanctification. We should have a joyful heart in our desire to live in obedience to God. Right? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are saved by faith in Christ and set apart. It's being sanctified. Working out our salvation is the process of sanctification, whereby we live in a manner to be conformed into the likeness of Christ through obedience to his word and living the characteristics and examples Christ lived that Paul speaks of in those first 11 verses of the chapter. And this is what the Philippians were doing. In verse 12, they were obeying and were being encouraged by Paul to continue doing so because difficult times they were going through and the difficult times that lay ahead. As it says in 1 John 2, 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. I want you to consider what Paul is doing here in this opening, in this verse 12. Paul presupposes obedience to God by those who claim to be believers, those who are born again. 
There's a presupposition of obedience. It's expected, if you're a believer, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, it's expected that you will live in obedience to him. And the Philippians were obedient, and so should we. And we should have joy in doing this. Now, I just want to stop right here and say, this is not about perfection. It's not about perfect lives. Okay? We do sin as Christians. Me too. We have repentant hearts, and it's a wonderful thing. We can go to God in repentance, and he forgives us. But we should strive. We should strive every day to obey Christ, to obey his word. It should give us joy. Our salvation is from God, and we are to pursue Christ's likeness as we would, as we work out our salvation. Psalm 3.8 says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And when we work out our salvation, we're to do it with fear and trembling. Proverbs 1.7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Does it mean we run and hide from God? No. It didn't work for Jonah. It didn't work for Adam in the garden. It means we are to have a reverence and awe for God and who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he can do and will do with those who believe in Christ and to those who reject him. It means we give God the honor he deserves And this fear protects against temptation and sin and leads us to live in obedience to his word. For it is through faith and obedience to his word that God enables us to be transformed into the likeness of Christ in order to do his will for his good pleasure, as he says, as Paul says in verse 13. Isaiah 64, 8 says this, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, And you, our potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. We strive to work out our salvation, our sanctification, because it is God who works in us and through us. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Amen? Right? So how are we to do all of this? How are we to do all of this? In verse 14, Paul tells us to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's a pretty tough one, isn't it? It's a pretty tall order. Now, to be honest with you, especially on a day like today, I'll find myself asking God, why couldn't you put me in a place that's 85 and sunny with palm trees and and a beach, right? Or I know during, uh, during the winter, on Sundays especially, you know, living in Chicago. I'll ask God, why? Why do you allow the existence of the Green Bay Packers? <laughs> I, I, I just, sometimes I wish God would put them on a trash heap of history and move on, but, but nonetheless, I love Wisconsin. It's good to have a little fun, isn't it? We can have a little fun with that. But seriously, though, but seriously, we as Christians are not to grumble or dispute with God. When we complain to God, we are rejecting his providence and his will that he has for us. We are not to be complainers. Now this begs the question, right? Who was the first complainer in history? Adam. 
In the garden, Adam complained to God. Genesis 3, 11 to 12 says this. Now remember, this is after Adam bit from the fruit, which he wasn't supposed to. Adam and Eve realized they were naked, and they hid from God. God was looking for them. They said they were naked. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Didn't take long for man to start complaining against God, did it? But sadly, it didn't stop with Adam. We also read about the grumbling and disputing by the Israelites that happened after God led them out of their bondage in Egypt. You read in Exodus what God did for his people in order to bring about their freedom from bondage. Remember the ten plagues that God brought forth against Egypt? The parting of the Red Sea, which enabled the Israelites to flee from Pharaoh with his armies in pursuit? And that God brought down the walls of water on a Pharaoh's army, drowning them all? Remember that? And then, was, then what happens? Then God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, if you didn't read about this in the Bible, I know you probably saw it in a movie by Cecil B. DeMille, the Ten Commandments, right? Remember Moses, Charlton Heston? He's on Mount Sinai waiting for the Ten Commandments, for God to write them. But then what happens? The Israelites, they start to complain. They were impatient. And in Exodus 32, what happens? They want a golden calf. Moses comes down. He witnesses their idolatry. And what did God do? He smote them all who were disobedient. And because of this and further complaining, the Israelites spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness because of their grumbling and disputing against God. That generation never entered into the promised land because of this, because of their disputing and complaining against the Lord. Now, here's another takeaway. Grumbling and complaining can lead to disobedience. It can make you hard-hearted. It can give you a critical spirit, and God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't want us to be complainers or grumblers. We are not supposed to question God or complain to him. Romans 9, 20 to 21 says this, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Remember that the Lord leads us through trials and testing. We have seasons in life of hardships, of joy and suffering. As Paul said back in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 29, all believers have been granted for Christ's sake to not just believe, but to suffer. Having the right attitude in pursuing Christ's likeness, that is our walk of sanctification. It will prove ourselves blameless. By living in obedience to God's word, working out our salvation in order to imitate Christ and live in the ways he demonstrated to us, we will appear as lights to the world. We will be light bearers 
shining in the darkness of a perverse and evil world, a crooked generation. We as born-again believers in Jesus Christ shine as lights in a world because of our spiritual character. Now, we possess our, that spiritual character not on our own accord, but because of Christ and that transformative power of the gospel. So, we as born-again believers in Christ Jesus shine as lights in the world because of our spiritual character, which shines among the darkness of this satanic world in which we live in. And what kind of world do we live in? <clears throat> I'm going to read to you from Romans 1, starting at verse 22 through the rest of the chapter. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. <clears throat> for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, adventurers of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the description of the unbelieving world, and we are in it. I can tell you after 33 years in the Chicago Police Department, it's purely evil out there. In our world today, it is believed and affirmed that a man can be a woman, and a woman can be a man based on feelings. That gender is fluid and can change at one's own will. The U.S. government advocates that, advocates that there are over 100 different genders, and that number is rising. Over 65 million babies have been murdered in a womb, and if that's not bad enough, young children are being mutilated in the name of transgenderism under the lie of love and inclusion. The evil that man does is further demonstrated in the disregard for life. Violent crimes are soaring, and the murder rate keeps increasing. Our leaders, they reward the evildoer and punish those who do good. Secular humanism is the religion of the world, and its motto is, do what thou will. These and many more are the dangers that await those who reject God and live in disobedience. It's Christ 
or it's chaos. It's Christ or it's chaos. I want to take a minute here just to go off script. What was just described in Romans 1, that was me. Maybe not every characteristic, but that was me. That was me before I was saved by Christ. That was me before Christ came down and saved me. I became a born-again Christian by his loving kindness and his mercy through no merit or effort of my own. If any one of you here, anyone here, feel hopeless or lost, feel there's no point in life, you feel it's all over, please listen closely. There is hope. The only hope that you have or any of us have is in Jesus Christ. All of us, all of us prior to being saved are described in Romans 1 in one way or another. But as Paul said, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And in the spirit of our God, we as born-again believers are not perfect by no means. Far from it. But we strive to live in obedience to God's word and share with others what Christ can do to lost sinners who become born again. And that should bring us joy. Okay, back to the script, okay. It's among this chaos of a perverse and evil world that we, born-again Christians in Jesus Christ, are to be light bearers to the world. The way born-again believers live in the world has a dramatic impact on how they influence the godless people in the world around them. If you're a Christian, people are watching you. They want to see how you live. They want to see if you live according to what you profess to believe in. And as believers, we have to possess the right doctrine and practice right biblical living. As believers, we must also proclaim and demonstrate gospel truths. Christians shine as lights. They are to bear the light of the truth of God's word that is in them, the word that they live by. Christians are to be lights to an unbelieving world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus called believers the light of the world, and Jesus tasked them to let their light shine before men in such a way that they may see their good works and glorify their Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 5, 14 and 16. Christians are to walk as children of light, Ephesians 5, 8. The quality of a believer's life is the platform of his testimony. No one remember this, please. A grumbling and complaining Christian will not have a positive impact on others around him. All this leads us to ask, well, how are we supposed to do this? How, how, how do we be a light bearer? We know what we're supposed to do. How, how do we do this? In verse 16, it says, we are to hold fast to the word of life. 
Word of life is scripture. It's God's word. And Jesus is the word made flesh. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the next uh, couple of verses, in verse 4 and 5 of John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We hold fast to the word of life by abiding in Christ. We abide in Christ. We abide in the word. We abide in Christ and we share with others the gospel, which redeems men to Christ and brings eternal life to the lost. Abiding and holding on to the word of life is more than just standing against those who would persecute us. Because as believers, we are going to be persecuted. It's, it's all that, of course, standing against this persecution, but also it's demonstrating the validity of the gospel to those outside of the faith by the way we live. That's being a light bearer. Demonstrating the validity, the validity of the gospel to those outside of the faith by the way we live. As we conclude, <clears throat> Paul was able to rejoice at the Philippians' sacrificial Christian service to others in verses 16 and 17. Paul desired for the Philippians to be light bearers to the world, to live a life of sanctification without grumbling or complaint. Paul anticipated the day when he would look back at the church in Philippi and rejoice in their faithfulness. This was to be a source for his joy. Verse 18. Paul was also looking forward to receive the joy that the Lord promises to every faithful believer. In Romans 5.11, it says this, And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul did not want his efforts to be in vain. Every pastor desires to see the fruit or reward of his efforts at proclaiming the gospel that leads his sheep to live their lives that demonstrate the gospel to be true and believable. And Paul is no exception. Paul here sees his life in ministry as an act of obedience to the Lord. Paul was a living sacrifice, not a dead one. And that is another reason for his joy. Just as Paul was able to receive great joy from his service and ministry and from serving others too, we can also participate in the joy we experience through our, own, through our own service and the service of other believers for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us serve our King with humility and obedience, being light bearers in a fallen world, demonstrating to the world around us that there is hope and joy and it is only found in Jesus Christ. For those of you who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ yet, I'll ask you this. You want to experience that joy that Paul speaks of? You want to experience that joy that all us believers share in? Believe in Christ 
That's the answer. Believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news. But before you know the good news, you got to know the bad news. The bad news is we're all sinners. We're all sinned against the holy God. And we can't save ourselves. And we're condemned. We're condemned. That's the bad news. Good news? Christ. Christ died on the cross for our sin. I put him there. We all put him there. But he died for our sin. If you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. And you can have eternal life. And you won't be under God's wrath. What do you do? Admit you're a sinner. Admit you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Believe he rose three days later. Believe he's coming again. Call on the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent of your sin and your life will be changed. You'll be a new creation and you will be a light bearer as well in this corrupt world. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for, for loving us. We thank you for saving us. Lord, we ask you to help us as we leave here today and guide our steps and, and help us to be light bearers to the world, Lord, sharing the good news and the joy that is found only in Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.